Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Now, do not be overly disappointed. There is no Natalie Sawyer today. She's on a clear Nations League high, along with everyone else in England. She's going to be back on Thursday. So to make up for it, in the studio with me is somebody who was definitely not partying into the night celebrating England's win, because I don't think he likes international football very much. It's Matt Hughes. Would that be fair? Uh, No, it was good yesterday. But you didn't stay up partying and celebrating, putting on your your Union Jack boxers and stuff, no? Well, no, because it was an England win, not a Great Britain win. Okay, you're... Boxers with uh, a St. George's own Cross. Any no. nationalistic underwear. Other than Huddersfield. Independent Republic of Huddersfield. That's it, yeah. Down the line, it gets even better. It's Matt Dickinson. Later on, we'll be discussing the championship clubs that are threatening to form a breakaway league. Wonder where they got that idea. And the row concerning Premier League Chief Executive Richard Scudamore and his golden farewell. There's one place to start, thanks to the excitement of the Nations League, and it's at Wembley, where England rounded off a memorable 2018 by beating Croatia 2-1 to top their Nations League group and advance to the finals next summer. Now, before we're going to talk about this, Dicko, can you contextualize this for us a little bit? Because the Nations League, it's a new competition. I think some people are finding it a little bit exciting. The weird thing about the context of this is that I was speaking to uh, one of our editors at halftime, and he was basically saying, well, this game's so up in the air, (laughs) we could be going uh, to the Final Four, or we could be getting relegated. We just don't know what to write or what to do. You were there. You were writing about it. Did you experience the same roller coaster of emotion? Well, certainly, I mean, anticipation is a big part of sport, isn't it? And and you actually walked into Wembley thinking, you know, we're in for a proper game. Um, We're in for a a, a competitive game, both sides fielding strong teams, both managers feeling, you know, under pressure to make sure their team performs. Players having a real desire, you could see, on both sides to finish top of the group, avoid relegation. I'm sure pretty much universally when the Nations League was first... uh, uh, put out there, you know, there was a sort of 10 minutes of scratching your head, working out what it actually meant, how it was going to work. And still, some of the formatting, as in, you know, how it sort of blends in with the 2020, Euro 2020 qualifying is, you know, is not, shall we say, at my fingertips. But, you know, what we've seen so far, it's 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 worked. I mean, and that's not just because England have thrived. It's worked because there have been some um, competitive games between well-matched leading nations. Yeah, I thought it's actually been tremendous. I mean, France and Holland on on Friday, Italy and Portugal, Belgium, incredible Belgium-Switzerland game. Who would have thought? Dramatic England comeback, but it's not even the most dramatic (laughs) comeback uh, of the day. Um, Husey, I mean, given that international football really, outside of major tournaments, really only ever gets exciting if your country is in a playoff, and even then, if they're in the playoffs, unless you support one of the smaller countries, it means that they've kind of failed and it's more driven by fear. This is good, yeah? Yeah, it's great. It's good. it's also great from top to bottom. It's great when England beat Spain in Spain. It's great when Switzerland shock Belgium, but it's also good in the, the fourth division because they're playing teams of comparable ability and creating real drama and tension and most of the games are live because of yesterday England could have finished in all of three positions in in the group which is what you want in sport the qualifying process is so sort of long and drawn out and frankly tedious for most of the bigger nations anyway that um, we don't look forward to qualifiers friendlies as we saw on Thursday are just a 
completely different thing. So I think it's been a brilliant idea, and it's not that complicated, really. I, never, I didn't really understand the moaning when it was announced. And people in football just don't like anything new and anything that makes them think for five seconds they disregard, and it's not difficult. You you, you finish bottoming group, you go down. You win it, you're in the semi-finals, and you get a few little bonuses by having a you know smaller qualifying group. But it, so it's not. I don't really understand what, what's so what's so difficult about it. Dicko, I heard somebody say that the last time Wembley was like this for for an England game, you need to go back to 1996. I think you were around in 1996. I was a wee lad, a wee lad. Yes, I think it's. It's it's around there. I mean, I think there's been there, there's there've been some good nights. Um, I mean, Barcelona winning the Champions League there. I mean, no, 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 no. I mean England. I mean I'm England. Joking. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> right, man. Bruce. I mean, when I was there for Bruce Springsteen, and that was fantastic. Um, <laughs> that, that was definitely the best atmosphere I've I've experienced at Wembley. Certainly the best performance. Um, but no, I think in in England context. Um, uh, yeah, I think it. it, it, it that's not just be, you know that's partly because of the context of yesterday. It's partly because of the comeback, but also I think it's obviously a, a spillover from from the the World Cup and and this. I mean, I wrote written about this morning. Twenty eighteen has been a year of of. I mean, in my experience, the vibes um, coming around England have, have it's been transformative. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned before. My, you know, my kids are talking about England in a way. They haven't in in their lifetimes. You know, you're turning up to watch the games with a, you know a bit of um, excitement about what you're going to see. The way they played in the first half, some of that. You know, I know they didn't have the cutting edge, but some of the passing and movement and running and pace and Rashford bursting in off the wing and uh, you know you were th- sitting there thinking this is fun. And and after all those years when we talked about England, you know, being a chore and we talked about the, he- the heaviness of the shirts and. You know, we could go through all the angst. Um, that in itself, it, you know, almost not quite irrespective of the result, but but that in itself is a is a joy and an achievement. You know, a lot of that is down to the players, but you know, Gareth Southgate's success in 2018, as as you know, particularly again, the expectations when he took over is 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 quite stunning, to be honest. My Croatian friend Dario texted me and said, "Well, make sure that when you do your, the game podcast, you you point out that." We were missing Mandzukic and Rakitic and Versaiko went off and ultimately like England only scored on a throw-in, um, which is basic route one, Neanderthal. He's being really unfair here, right? England did have their moments, right? Sorry, Dario, but you're, you're being kind of a sore loser here. I think he's being a bit unfair. I mean, first half England could probably should have been 2 3 nil up. They were completely dominant in Croatia, as they do, and we saw in the summer they they don't they just don't give up and they kind of cling on in there and I thought they were going to look like they were going to nick it again um, I mean they got better after half time as as in the World Cup semi-final but um, I think trying to be neutral on an objective you couldn't argue that England were the better team over, over 90 minutes and you know deserved the bit of luck they got with the, with the set piece and the scrambled goal Dicko it could have gone differently and, and I'm going to point this out by juxtaposing it with something Southgate said afterwards and I don't know if he was just caught up in the emotion um, because he's he's generally been very measured and, you know, it's been hard to disagree with most things that he said. But when he said Harry Kane was the best goal scorer in the world and you look at those two misses in the first half and you look at the fact that there's guys named Lionel and Cristiano who, while not center forwards, score an absolute ton of goals, this is just a slip and we can we can excuse Gareth for that, right? 
I think so. Yeah, I mean, yes. Even Gareth can get carried away. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's that. But yeah, I, I think. Shall we say that was an overstatement, a wee bit of uh, exaggeration? And as you, you know, from him, um, I guess that's notable in itself. But he's he's been so measured, and, and I think. Again, you know, we've seen so many times with England, you know, we get a 5-1 in Munich or we, you know, we get a, a result and we think, oh, is this, is this a turning point? And, um, and often it, it fritters away or, you know, we just sort of brace ourselves. It turns out to be a, a crashing disappointment three months later. But this seems to be built on foundations. And, and we came out of the World Cup thinking, right, well, you know, we need to see some tactical flexibility. Well, we've seen it. You know, we need to see more strength in depth. Suddenly Lingard and Ali, who were key figures, you know, having to come off the bench. Trippier wouldn't get in the team at the moment, so, you know, even though he was, you know, fantastic at the World Cup. So we got to the last four. A lot of people rightly asked, was that just a, a lucky run? Was it, you know, luck of the draw, or a weak side of the draw? Well, we may have benefited from that, but there is something... There is something going on here, isn't there? Um, I think that's, that's fair to say. How far it's going to take us, that's a little bit of, of, of excitement to come in 2019. But there is, there is something going on here which is not sort of freakish or flukish. I wasn't a fan when he introduced the, the, the back three uh, because I didn't think it was a long-term solution uh, for England. So I was happy when he went back to the back four. Or I would have been happy if I were a big England fan like you guys are. Um, He's not going to go back to a back three now, is he? I mean, this is it. He's got he's got the players that can work in a four three three. He has maybe a little bit more depth than than he thought he had. This is it now, right? Did, did he explain his long term thinking with with switching to a four? He always said that you know that he he felt that the, the the back three was the most stable way of of setting up a team, which you know has sort of been through its traumas. Um, obviously, you know, he took over a team that has most recent tournament had been that Iceland debacle so you know he felt that that was a way you know from his own experience as player and coach felt that was the most stable way and um, uh, and who could sort of deny that over the that year going into the World Cup but I think crucially you know we we wondered if it would be sort of found out and I think in that semi-final um, a couple of wise coaches I speak to about the game you know straight afterwards said he had to go to a back four then you know the, the back three became a back five the midfield therefore run out of, of, of passing options and, and get pushed back. You know, he didn't sort of dilly dally after the World Cup. He got straight on. He, he felt this was, as you say, more flexible. He, it gets Rashford on the pitch, who I think has been one of the main beneficiaries. It, Sterling is probably in a more familiar position than he is with City. Um, the midfield shape works. You know, there may be a time when he wants to go. You know, whether in game or or for a particular game, he knows how to set up a team with a back three. The players are comfortable with it. So, you know, having that variety is is, an, is another massive strength. I was impressed by Fabian Delph. I, I, I find this guy just fascinating because he was a big-time guy when he, was, when he was coming through, when he was very young. He goes to City. He has his injuries. He seems forgotten. Seems like he's just hanging around because he happens to be English. Then, obviously, last season, he reinvents himself as a left-back. And he hangs around now as a spare midfielder, and in that game, he hits a tremendous pass with his with his weak foot. And I know City are are obviously blessed with riches. Is he staking a claim for for a bigger role at City, or is he just kind of like the the designated guy who will who will compete with Gundogan as you know the defensive guy off the bench? Well, he's always going to struggle to 
nailed down a regular place in that team. Fernandinho is obviously going to start every game. But, but we're saying, um, is, is that his natural role? It's the alternative to Fernandinho, do, do you think? More so than one of the two in front of him? Uh, I, th- I think it is his natural role. He probably could play in a more advanced position, but then you're talking about putting him against De Bruyne and Silva and De the options. De Bruyne is injured and the Silva brothers aren't going to play every game, right? Sure, I think he's val- very valuable to City, which is what we saw last year playing at left-back. It's also significant how much Southgate clearly trusts him. You mean he made him captain for that nonsense on Thursday night and well, that was more <laughs> more interesting than Wayne Rooney trotting out for half an hour but it shows you know shows how much the England management team respect him and um, value his contribution and yesterday especially first half I thought he was absolutely excellent as was Ben Chilwell another player who's just kind of come from nowhere to now basically be first choice for England which is another impressive element of the Southgate revolution I think it's how quickly he's integrated all these young players and they look like a team Final point on this, just because you mentioned Wayne Rooney, so I, I was reminded of this. Uh, Dicko, can't remember whose piece it was in. Actually, I think it might have been our pal Johnny Northcroft in the uh, in the Sunday Times. But he spoke to Rooney, and Rooney basically came out and said, well, a lot of former England players from, from the golden generation are jealous of these guys, not me. I just want them to do well. I'm an England fan now. I'm not bitter. I'm not jealous. I'm on board. I don't know if he misspoke, if it was a rare moment of, of total honesty, uh, especially now that he's out of the England setup. But what do you make of this? Is this just kind of like a natural thing where, like, the old guy saying, like, well, we were much better in my day, blah, blah, blah? I mean, there's not anything more to it, is there? Or is there? I, I was slightly taken aback by it, to be honest. I mean, I think, um, yeah, there, there will always be players out there who. Um, you know, like to be catty or say it's not, you know, not as good as their day. You know, that's probably get that in every walk of life. But I, I, you know, I think one of the sort of building up from what I said before, that you know, one of the the most sort of extraordinary things about, um, and obviously what the Gareth alluded to about the Wembley atmosphere was just the positivity uh, around it all. So I, you know, I, I think that the country's pretty positive. I think the the, the relationship between media players and coaches is is about as as sort of stable and um uh as it's been in my uh, memory it slightly took me by surprise to be honest I, I haven't i haven't heard a lot of cattiness and there's certainly not a lot of foundation for it is there This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Right, so in 1992, a bunch of England's biggest clubs got together and sort of voted to break away from the Football League to form the FA Premier League and to basically stop sharing as much of the income they generated with the rest of the Football League. Hughes, you had a story last week suggesting that history might be repeating itself with a bunch of championship clubs not being happy at having to go and share with a bunch of stiffs in League Two. Tell us more. Well, I'm quite sure I said it was going to happen, but the story... You said it was definitely going to happen and right, Leeds okay. were going to lead Premier League Two. Uh, mm, not play sure. Huddersfield in the Derby next year what, when Huddersfield get relegated. What did happen was that 15 championship clubs wrote a letter to the EFL threatening what they put as drastic action if EFL went ahead with plans to sign a new TV contract with Sky. I mean, at the risk of drowning you in detail, 
it's not purely about greed. I think what it really is, it's a power play from certain championship clubs, well, Aston Villa, Leeds and Derby County. So the big ones? The big one, yeah. The big, the biggest championship clubs, I seem to have a real issue with the way that EFL are run and they frankly think they're incompetent and they should be getting a far bigger TV deal from Sky or whoever, so they basically want to can the deal that is, is agreed and go back to market and get more money from themselves. The EFL say that's just not realistic and there is no one, no other real bidder in town. So it's really a case of them saying, we want a bigger pie. We want you guys to go and get us a bigger, a bigger pie. They want a bigger we don't pie just want more want of the more, one you have. And they want, more con- they want more control. They want basically run the league themselves. Their threat is they will leave if they don't get what they want. Um, the EFL claim it's an empty threat because the Premier League basically don't don't want a PL2. They've had they've spent last year arguing amongst themselves about how to um, share out their own money. So they don't want to split it, add another twenty four clubs to um to, to the pot. Um but I was speaking to a championship chief executive yesterday and they seem to be serious. He made the point that well if we form our own league and then League One clubs have to get promoted to the Premier League. The Premier League won't like that, so they're going to have to talk to us. So um, it's not it's not going to it's not going to go away, um, and it'll be, be fascinating to see how how it's resolved in the short term. Dicko, what's your sense of this? Because especially with the evolution of the Championship, I think has been such that in in the last few over the last five years, perhaps there's been a ton of money going into it. A lot of it from foreign owners. A lot of it from people who. Who say, well, you know, if I go and I spend fifty million pounds on my crappy championship team and turn them into a really good team, then maybe I'll get promotion to the Premier League and the untold TV riches there. Do they have a point? You know, you've got aspirational clubs throwing uh, as much money as they can get away with to, to try and get um, promoted. You've got teams coming down, some of whom are well set to come down, others that are in some sort of spiral, you know, death spiral and, and you know, heading for years and years in, in the wilderness. And small clubs who just well managed suddenly dreaming of, of the big time and the Premier League riches. And it, it makes for, a, I mean, I, I watch an awful lot of championship football, uh, mostly down at Loftus Road. And um, as a fan, it's, it's, it's a great league uh, to watch. Just And there, there tends to be a, lot, a heck of a lot of volatility in it because of all the things mentioned above. On the specifics of this deal, I think they've got to be careful not to overplay their hand, to be honest. You know, you can understand, particularly a Leeds owner who is uh, a massive TV exec sitting around with his mates and saying, you know, I know the market, um, and thinking that um, he can get a better deal. But I think they need to be very careful um, about overplaying that hand. The fact is, as Matt correctly says, the Premier League are very happy with it as it is. They don't want Premier League B or Premier League 2, and they're not interested in that. Um, you know, the idea that they can sort of go off and set up their own league as if this is sort of, you know, AC Milan and Bayern Munich and Man United talking is, is you know, they're not. Um, Why? And, yeah, I think... Sorry, I think, but, well, I mean, okay, just viewed from the outside, right? They get... The average attendance is north of, of 20,000. I'm sure if you just take the the top 15 or 18 clubs, it's probably well north of that. They have a big following. It is, but they're, they're part of a pyramid, and they're not the top part. You know, they're, 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 you know so they're, they're part of a, a structure. And, the, you know, the idea that, well, they sort of form a breakaway and, and still be authorised by the FA and still 
have the sort of you know be part of of that pyramid. I mean, you know, they're not. They are some very successful clubs. They are. I can you know. Yes, they, to some of them it may feel like League One, League Two is sort of troublesome baggage to them. But a lot of these clubs, you know, work their way up through there and may well end up back there. You know, this is a pyramid that is working, and you know, you can't just take one sort of chunk out of it. So I think. There's a lot of greed, obviously a bit of self-interest. There may be some business brain behind it as well. I'm not disputing that. Some smart executives looking at it thinking we can do better. But as I say, I just think they need to talk a breakaways, um, sabre-rattling, but uh, you know, they, they can't overplay their hand. I'm not, you know, I don't think it's that strong that they're going to be able to put a gun to anyone's head. When they tell you that the Football League, in their opinion, is badly run, can you just, other than, than, than the TV, which we've talked about, can you just, for those who don't know, tell us who's in charge of the Football League and what examples they cite of the Football League being poorly run? I think the financial fair play stuff was, you know, the, 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 the rules on that were, uh, again, sorry to, to take you back to Loftus Road, but obviously the QPR situation with, you know, fi- you know fines of 40 I mean, QPR broke the rules. There's no two ways about that. But they ended up with some very extraordinary um, and almost sort of very hard to enforce FFP rules for a while. Um, that's caused them, you know, that was uh, entirely mishandled. Um, among, uh, that's just to, to cite one example. Matt will probably have plenty of others. Right, the main issue, it, it does seem to be this, this. There's a lot of resentment about the TV deal and the amount of time certain clubs, particularly like United, are on TV um, for very little additional payment. Um, but from the EFL side, you have to sort of sympathise about how difficult it is to run an organisation so big. They've got to manage the interests of really big clubs like Aston Villa, Leeds. These clubs get 30-odd thousand proud histories, but they've also got to look after Newport County and the the teams in in League 2 and balance the whole interest. So it's pretty hard to keep the Premier League 20 together. Keeping the EFL 72 is almost impossible. So I kind of do have sympathy with with the EFL board and the, uh, the task they're trying to manage. Right, but you guys are just to wrap this up. You guys are both pretty confident that this is just saber rattling and nothing's actually going to happen. I don't think they will leave. No. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall—whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray Five-in-One gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom spray 5 in 1, only from Rustolium. Somebody who is leaving is Richard uh, Scudamore, who uh, was a major figure in the history and development of the Premier League. He's been in charge for 19 years. He will be replaced down the line by uh, a lady named Susanna Dinich. The interesting thing here, and this really upset a lot, a lot of people. There's an absolutely vitriolic piece from our colleague Henry Winter in the paper last week, is that it's been proposed that he should get a payout of five million pounds, kind of like a, a golden, a golden farewell. Every Premier League club kicks in two hundred and fifty grand. Now, before we get into this, I'm assuming this story comes from one of the clubs who didn't feel like paying him two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Is that right, Dico? 
Uh, I think it's fair to say yes. Okay. Um, right. I've, I've heard a few <laughs> suspects, but um, probably 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 not wise or legal to um, to randomly um, throw throw accusations around on that. But yeah, someone trying to kibosh it, that's for sure. All right. So just to be clear on this, and somebody has to play the contrarian here, and fine enough, I'll do that. So the Premier League is actually 20 wealthy owners who sit around and decide and they can do what they want. Um, Why are people so upset that after two decades in which the league has seen incredible growth in terms of of attendances, in terms of stadium building, in terms of development, in terms of, of TV money, the fact that Scudamore can say, look, I have made all you people a lot richer, and a lot of you guys were very wealthy to begin with. Um, the league has grown. As a result, the solidarity payments have also grown. Everybody's trickled down and benefited. We are one of the most successful exports that this country's ever produced. Why should I not be given a £5 million bonus? Given also that in 19 years, I earned £26 million, which is a ton of money, but relative to what a lot of people make and a lot of club chairmen, let alone footballers, let alone Gordon Taylor, really isn't that much. Well, I think part of the upset is the way it was presented um, as a leaving present, which it isn't really, is it? It's an ongoing consultancy payment, and it's a sort of, there's a no-compete clause in there that he can't go and work for any other rival organisation, which in the city, I think, is common practice and no one would blink an eyelid but um so it, he, he ought, just to be clear he couldn't go and become ed woodward's boss at manchester united either no or go and work for la liga or right. syria or whoever for a period of at least three years i think um but it was presented as let's buy richard and i's present <laughs> um, which is slightly different and the other, the other thing is which is, 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 the, is the context um of all this which only a few weeks ago we learned that wembley wouldn't be sold and that kind of led to lots of um, pieces about the crisis in grassroots football and how people who can't play games in the winter on weekends because the pictures are so terrible and how something must be done and we need to raise money for this. So I think in that context, it just the timing particularly jars. Although I must say they're not obviously not directly related, but you can see why it got people uh, so agitated. Dicker, were you as agitated as, as Henry and others were? As Matt says, I think it's partly a sort of um, PR nightmare more than I think it's sort of symbolic rather than anything. I mean, I think the I, I, I spoke to mates in the city, and, and as you say, if it presented as you know he's doing three years of consultancy, there's no compete, you know, for the sort of sums that he's raised, um, yeah, in the city, that was this would be absolutely normal. No one would um, blink at all. I think it is, as Matt says, it's a sort of becomes a bit, you know, it isn't the city, it's football where often a far more emotive subject and um, I think the way it sort of dribbled out, which was dribbled out to kibosh it obviously didn't help. People instantly just saw it as football throwing around money. Um, I think some people um, don't like uh, it's, a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? They don't. They, on the one hand, we want the, the the best players here. We want the stars. We want the, you know, we want this league to be successful. On the other, people get upset when they hear a player is earning X, or you know, they call they call the Premier League, you know, a greed league. It's a sort of it's a weird it's a weird sort of contradiction there, really. And this this was seen uh, obviously by some, including our colleague Henry, as a sort of symbolic of that when. Actually, you could say it's just a, another measure of, of the financial boom and success of the last 20 years. 
Well, not just Henry, obviously, the Football Supporters Federation as well raised the issue. A, a, a lot of fans are are upset by this, um, and it may be because of the way it was pre- presented. Do you have any clever way, Husey, since you're a clever guy uh, who understood the Nations League immediately? Um, that's, my, that's my limit. <laughs> is there a way for them to get out of it now? I mean, um, in terms of, like, come out of this not looking like a big boys club? I don't think so. I think sort of people rushed to judgment before the detail was was agreed at the Premier League meeting last Thursday. So it's it's possibly too late. I mean, they, there's all sorts of things they, they kind of could do to uh, ameliorate it, like giving more money to Football Foundation or some sort of charitable thing. But I don't know. I think Richard Scudamore was kind of you know been on the book a few times. I don't think he really cares what people think. No, not, but like, it's not really... I mean, he's there to, to, to negotiate. And like I said... Um, I mean, let's not forget Bruce Burke, who's basically the man who organised this, called other Pony Clubs a great unwashed last month. So um, that kind of gives you an insight into how some of these people there, think. There is an argument, though, that if I'm Manchester United or Arsenal or Spurs, I've benefited from Richard Scudamore far more than your club, Huddersfield, who've only been in the Premier League for a couple of years, for example. So why should whoever, the man who owns Huddersfield, why should he pony up what the Glazers pony up? It's a fair point, but they've clearly agreed to all put in some amount of money. Ultimately, if you're Huddersfield or you're Burnley, you're not going to kick off um, with the big boys on the Premier League table. It's quite... It's quite amusing. Whenever there's sort of a big Premier League issue, you get lots of um, sort of anonymous briefings. The transfer window, VAR brings to mind, and people moaning about oh, we shouldn't be doing this, that, the other. When it comes to the vote, Richard Scudamore and the big clubs tend to tend to get what they want. Okay, enough boring you with politics or football stuff. How about some quick hits instead? How about some transfers? David De Gea's contract expires next summer, though Manchester United have the option of extending it by another year. Still, Husey, are you surprised they've left it this late? Um, well, I think they're in a good position and will trigger the option, as they do with all their players, really. it's there. They can trigger it whether De Gea wants to sign or not. So he's really got 18 months. Whether it'll extend beyond that is unclear, really. Obviously, the, the Real Madrid route seems to be boxed off after Courtois went there but there's interest from Juventus um, hard to see where it'll go I mean he will want to be winning things because he's an outstanding goalkeeper and depends who the next manager is I suppose Is there as much of a market for him abroad? Because when people see him for Spain where he's made more than a few blunders I just wonder if abroad he's viewed in the same way he's viewed here The thing is there are a lot of, there are a lot of good goalkeepers around aren't there so yeah. um, it's not like Outfield players, you only want you only want one good goalkeeper, obviously. So um, I'm not sure. Gordon Taylor, the head of the players union, the Professional Football Association, has held the job for 40 years, and as people keep reminding us, is the best-paid union official in Britain, with a salary of 2.3 million pounds a year, which is substantially more than I make. Matthew Syed, I think it's substantially more than Matthew Syed makes too. Uh, anyway, Syed says he should be investigated. Dick, are you on board with this? And why should he be investigated, since I'm sure you've read Matthew's piece? I have read his piece, and, um, well, probably a bit uh, long for a quick hit, but he, he makes uh, an important point in it about about why, and it's not just to do with the salary, it's more 
to do with conflict of interest, um, uh, and then there's a wider issue of, of, of an organisation that's been run as a bit of a sort of personal fiefdom for, for too long, and now a guy who's challenging that, and um, it, it's, there's a, a sort of attempt to exclude him from, uh, from, from a role and from the conversation. So I, I, this isn't going away. I think we, we've seen a letter now from an awful lot of players, including prominent ex-players. Uh, I think this is getting ahead of steam, and I think it will end with Gordon Taylor leaving the organization, and that will be no bad thing at all. You know, it's kind of funny here. We, we had a piece with Jason Roberts, who I, I really like, uh, in the piece talking about how there should be more ex-footballers in, in leadership positions, administration positions, and stuff like that within FIFA and in the FA and elsewhere, and I totally agree with him. That said... These are the same professional footballers who have kept Gordon Taylor around for 40 years, 40 years of the same guy in the job, which means either he can't be as bad as people say, or it means that these people are thick and don't really care. Not all of them, but maybe we shouldn't pick our footballing leaders from the cohort of people who are good at playing football. Daniel Sturridge has until tomorrow evening to answer a charge of breaching the Football Association's betting regulations. Husey, this is a complicated and boring tale. Can you sum it up for us in 20 seconds or less? Do you really want me to? Uh, Daniel Sturridge has been charged with breaching rules that prevent footballers betting on football or passing on information that could lead to others betting on football. Um... He was charged last week following a nine-month investigation. He quickly, or rather Liverpool, quickly released a statement in which he said he hadn't ever bet on football himself, but it seems clear, and the allegation is that he's passed on information inadvertently or otherwise to family members who bet on his destination in last January's transfer window when he eventually joined West Brom, but there was a flurry of activity um, on of, of money taken from him joining other clubs including into Milan um, so it's all a bit of a mess and depending on how you interpret it he could be seen as a victim of, of this if he's sort of unwittingly told people who've tried to make a quick book but um, it's, to me it demonstrates the FA at least are trying to clean up the sport and remove any temptation from players or their families Nine months for this there's a very simple solution here don't allow bookmakers to take bets on Who's going to get this manager's job? Who's going to who's going to transfer to this other club? Because those things aren't things that are decided on the pitch. Those are things where inside information makes those bets very, very vulnerable. Just get rid of it. Don't let people bet on it, and you won't have the problem. You won't have the issue of odds for next Southampton manager. And if I was a manager, and I know I'm not, I'm not going. I could just go and lay myself all day long, right? Since I know I'm not taking the job. It's just so stupid that, that that these betting markets even exist. Is there a market on the next game podcast presenter? No, because I have it locked up. <laughs> and if I didn't, I'd be laying myself. Right, crystal ball time. England can face Switzerland, Portugal, and either France or Holland, depending on tonight's result. Uh, by the way, for those who aren't following, we're taping this, of course, on a Monday morning. Monday night, Germany play Holland, and anything other than a Germany victory would mean that Holland will be in the final four. So of these four teams that England can face, what's the best draw for Gareth Southgate, Dicko? Ooh, best draw. Um, On ranking, I guess, if you want to play the weakest team, it would be Holland. Um, Obviously, they're there coming out of um, a pretty big slump by the looks of it. Um, Switzerland, we beat um, quite recently. Um, I'd say we've got nothing to fear, have we, these days? Well, maybe France. I think I'd be quite worried about them. But um, 
I think it's great we've got it to look forward to. We've got, um, say, more competitive matches, more learning, more chance to see uh, Southgate's team you know, test themselves. Um, this is all part of building to Euro 2020. Gab, one for you. You heard about Holland and Germany in your column today. Germany relegated with a game to spare, but should we be excited about Holland? It's really a weird one, Hughesy, as I wrote. But Holland obviously have an outstanding central defender in Virgil van Dijk, who everybody knows about. They have the guy who right now is, is one of the best attacking players in Europe in Memphis Depay, who really has bounced back tremendously from his nightmare at, at Manchester United. And they have a whole group of young players that people are getting very excited about, from De Ligt to Frankie de Jong to Denzel Dumfries. The problem is these guys have only ever played in Holland. They haven't even been capped very often. Frankie de Jong, people are talking, oh, Barcelona, 60 million. But this is a guy who I think he won his fourth cap the other day, and he's 21 years old. So I find them really, really difficult to, to judge, as is difficult to judge the fact that Ryan Bobble is still starting for him. But, yeah, it's... It's hard to dislike them, and I think you're kind of psyched that they're back in the big time after missing out on the last two major championships. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guest, Matt Hughes, in the studio. Matt Dickinson, somewhere in uh, Mortlake, somewhere... Is it Mortlake? Um, yeah, that's, that's, as, that's as vague as you need. Yeah, well, we, we, we don't want to get... We, we don't want to give too I much... I don't want to get autograph hunters, stalkers any of the above or debt collectors more likely exactly so uh, yeah Matt Dickinson somewhere in in West London um, but still a long goal kick uh, away from the Syed residence I believe Uh, remember you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it's just one pound a week for an eight week trial search the Times subscription for more information Uh, We'll be back on Thursday as the Premier League makes his return, as does Natalie Sawyer, as does Claudio Ranieri. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 